Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. What people forget or may not know, I know I didn't know it until I began this culinary journey, you know, decades ago, is that uh, Africa has its own rice. And it is the rice that was at the origin of the Carolina rice culture. That was Jessica Harris, a professor, culinary historian, former New York Times theater critic. I'll be speaking with her later in the show. First, it's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to check in with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about the story behind this week's recipe. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You, you seem to spend all of your time on trips while I'm spending all my time in the office. Yeah, you, I don't, are... you know, the office is lovely and all, but I like to get out on the road. <laughs> Peru. You were in Peru. I was in Peru. <laughs> uh, and one of the things you did was to track down a recipe 
actually an old recipe from Italian immigrants in Peru for a different kind of pesto. Yeah, it's really a fascinating backstory behind this recipe. It dates to the 19th century when huge waves of Italian immigrants came over, mostly from Genoa, the home of the basil-based pesto that we know best. Well, when they got to Peru, they found that they didn't have any of the ingredients that they were used to back home. Now, they were able to make pasta because they could get flour, but as for making pesto to go with it, they had to figure out from local ingredients what they could do. And they ended up substituting spinach for the basil and queso fresco for the parmesan. They gave up on the pine nuts because they couldn't find a good substitute and just left them out entirely. But they also did a few other neat things. They started cooking their pesto. Now this actually, at first I thought that was kind of crazy, but that also dates back to Italy, where oftentimes the basil was blanched briefly in order to freeze the color, so that when you turned it into pesto, it was still a bright green. But they did it to the spinach. The effect it had, though, is that it made a much uh, bolder flavored, brighter flavored pesto in the end. And I was really blown away. It's an interesting story. I met with Gaston Acurio, Peruvian chef, and he was describing as kind of a love story between these two cultures. The, as the Italians tried to mesh with Peruvian culture, they brought their customs. And now, though, this is no longer considered an Italian dish. It is truly a Peruvian dish. I never thought you'd be a sucker for a love story. Come on, <laughs> anyone. Like... As long as I can eat it. <laughs> So you cooked the pesto, but what about the pasta part? Okay, so this was another neat thing. Now, of course, you know, we're all familiar with cooking pasta al dente, so it's got, it's got some firmness to it. But what they do is they undercook the pasta, you know, by probably two or three minutes before we would normally pull it off the stove. Next to that pasta, they've got their skillet of pesto simmering away. They take the pasta directly from the water and they throw it into the pesto and they finish cooking it in the pesto itself. Now, not only does the liquid finish cooking the pasta, but the flavor of the pesto is infused into the pasta much better than if you just tossed finished pasta with the pesto. And it's a great trick for upping the flavor. So you cook the pesto with the pasta, finish it in a skillet. Uh, in each, I didn't hear cheese or any other ingredients. Well, the queso fresco in place of the parmesan that we would normally grind okay. into the pesto, that goes on top for the most part. They still keep dairy in the pesto itself, but they use cream. And, you know, they, for a while they played with condensed milk because that was more ubiquitous in Peru. But the cream just gives it this beautiful body, this richness that we're, usually we would be getting from the pine nuts in a pesto. And then they give it a squirt of lime juice that, again, just kind of ties everything together and brightens it up. When you taste this, you, you know you're eating pesto, but it's somehow different from a different time in a different place. It's really so delicious. you say pesto, I say pasta sauce. <laughs> okay, it's a pasta sauce. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you, Jam. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website. That's MilkStreetRadio.com. Also, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also at our site, MilkStreetRadio.com. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, you ready? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name's Brian. I'm out in Cupertino, California. How can we help you? I've been into Vietnamese food for quite a while now, mm -hmm. and my girlfriend is unfortunately allergic to fish, like fin fish, shellfish, and everything like that's okay. That's and of so course, odd. most Vietnamese recipes require fish sauce, and I'm right. figuring it mostly provides the umami that you right. need. And you know, I figured maybe some sort of mix of some other 
like glutamate producing compounds could work, but I was wondering if you had any particular advice. Well, I do. I was actually in Thailand not too long ago, and I discovered that MSG is a legitimate above-board ingredient in a lot of recipes, which is the ultimate umami flavor. Right. So that's something people actually add. Shrimp paste is something else you can get if she's not okay. allergic to crustacean. And my recipe editor told me that he found a... Um, Vegetarian. vegetarian I've heard fish of that. Sauce, I have heard of that. Uh, which so, makes me a little skeptical. Okay. I don't quite get it. Uh, maybe it's just, you is know, soy sauce. Like with Marmite MSG. or something yeah, like that. That's right. Exactly. I don't know. Uh, you'd have to try. But dried shrimp or shrimp paste would probably be the closest thing. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing. solution. I mean, fish sauce okay. is so unique. You know, you could say soy sauce, but soy sauce is so different. Right. Well, I was wondering if maybe just like a mix of several different sort of umami providers, uh, and maybe the shrimp would give you the kind of like seafood essence that you're looking for from it as well. Like maybe mixing these things together would give you like a really close approximation or something like that. How about like a dark miso too? Oh. You know, okay. miso That's is fermented soybeans and the darker it is, the saltier it is and the stronger it is. Maybe you combine that with the dried shrimp. Is the dried shrimp salty, Chris? Uh, yeah. Oh, well, so maybe you don't even really need anything else. I think the shrimp paste would be the, that's the go-to thing. And I think some MSG, which I've talked to a lot of people in the last few months where they're quietly talking about using MSG. I know, because it was, it's such, it's considered <laughs> it's such back. a, it's a, well, as we said, if you wait long enough, what was bad for you is now good for you. Well, all the studies oh, about sure. headaches just weren't really proven. True. Yeah. It occurs naturally in food. Right. But you're in California, so you probably think it's awful. You guys are pure out there. Are you judging them because they're from uh, well, No, I like that they're pure. You can, you can certainly find MSG around here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people use things like bouillon cubes, like yeah. in Nigeria. Yeah. They take bouillon cubes and peanuts uh-huh. and grind them up and use that as a coating for fried chicken. So a lot of those things are being used huh. all over, yeah. Well, bouillon cubes is interesting for our friend here too, yeah. Brian. Maybe that's something to think about. That could be interesting. Yeah. I, I was wondering if something like bovril might also be yeah. helpful. And also check out the <laughs> the vegetarian fruit sauce. I have no idea what that is. I don't, I don't know what's in there. It's worth trying anyway. Yeah. yeah. And, All right. Well, give that a shot and let us know about that. And by the way, stay away from Worcestershire. That also has fish in it. Yeah. She already knows to stay away from that. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for much. calling. Yeah. Take care. All right. Bye. Hello. Who's calling? Hi. This is Holly Allen. Hi, Holly. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Worcester, Massachusetts. What is your question? I look at a lot of recipes, and as I go through the recipes, many of them say, put blah, blah, blah into your stand mixer. And I do not have one. So my question is, can I substitute my hand mixer? No, but you could probably do many of them with a hand mixer. I mean, if you're doing a stiff dough that takes many minutes on the machine... Or let's say you're doing um, a whole bunch of egg whites. Your life would be a lot easier with a stand mixer. The thing you can't do is bread dough, and you can't do thick cookie dough. Yeah. But you could do any kind of creaming of butter and eggs and whites. It, yeah. As Sarah said, it would take more time. you got to hold it. So what are you mostly baking? Well, it's mostly cookie recipes, but there's an awful lot. Like I did try to make a pureed sweet potato using my hand mixer instead of the stand mixer the recipe called for, and it did not come out very well at all. For sweet potato, you could have used your food processor. Right. Not for white potatoes, but for sweet potatoes you could. Yes. Let me just say for a minute that the thing about it, if you do a lot of baking, particularly a lot of cookies, a stand mixer is really a fantastic thing. But they're also very big, so they take up That's true. space. 
storage space. KitchenAid. And I live in a tiny little kitchen. KitchenAid has a new smaller one. A 4.5 quart. But when I looked at that size of that bowl, it doesn't really look like it's big enough. No, it's not. But I also don't need the behemoth, right? There are in-between sizes, but you're right. It does take up a fair amount of real estate. Actually, I found in the last few years a lot of people, and Sarah's one of them, if I just have two or three egg whites or a few eggs to whip up, I'll just put them in a bowl and right. get a whisk. And, and it's, just do it it's by quick hand. and easy. Obviously, if you're whipping eight or ten egg whites, that's something else. You have get... to cream butter and sugar. You can't do that. But just for mixing, I find doing it by hand is a couple minutes, and it's actually less work because you don't have to clean it up. Right. But you do need a stand mixer for a yeast bread, bread and you need it for a dense cookie dough. Stiff, stiffer dough. I love mine, I have to say. Well, it seems like it's a pretty standard it's worth piece of kitchen equipment it. nowadays. It is. I, I use it more oh. than my food processor. So yeah. I, I think you're going to have to connive to get someone yeah, to Mother's buy it Day, for Mother's you. Day. They then, have beautiful uh, colors, too. Oh, I know, they really do. <laughs> oh, no, us women like those things, Chris. Yeah, you're just going to have to get this thing bought. Yeah, I am going to have to reallocate the budget and do something. All right, take care. All right, yeah. thank you very much. Bye. Thanks, Holly. Bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just give us a ring, one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hello. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Krista. I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. What is your question? I was wondering if I could use kefir in place of buttermilk in baking. We actually tested that at Milk Street. The answer was you can, but it's like a B minus. It's okay. kind of different. And so it worked, but I would just keep a can or a, you know, a cardboard containers of buttermilk powder in the refrigerator. And I think it's one quarter cup of powder and one cup of water to replace one cup of buttermilk. And that actually is probably the best substitute, but it worked. But I actually would use Greek yogurt or yogurt instead. Is that because, okay. uh, how, however you pronounce it, kefir? Kefir or something, I don't know. Yes, that that's not, doesn't have the lactic acid that buttermilk does, so it just doesn't behave the same way? Well, it's got grains in it. It's, it's, it's fermented grains. Fermented as, grains as yeah. opposed to buttermilk, which is a dairy product, right? It's different. Yeah. yeah. So the acidity is probably different. The texture is different. In a pinch, it works, but right. Yeah. I mean, my wife actually like drinks kefir. I oh, it's tasty. I like it. I, di- I didn't realize it was quite so different from our, milk. I hadn't thought about it in terms of cooking. But. So we, uh, we kind of answered that. You can do it, but it's not ideal. It's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank, thank you for calling. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Krista. Hello. Who's calling? Uh, this is Henry from Chadsford, Pennsylvania. Hello, Henry. I know you have a question for us. Yes, I do. Um, we make uh, fried almonds every year. I've been doing it since I was a boy with my father. And I've been remarkably unsuccessful in getting the salt to stick to the almonds ever since I've been a boy. So I'm hoping you might have some suggestions. Are you deep frying the almonds? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. In the old days, you used to um, shell them, many poked holes in the fingers and little cuts. Wow. Blanch them, and then we would fry them in a pan. My father would do that until I got old enough to take over. But in recent times, I found I could buy them uh, bulk, blanched, and ready to go, and I have a rotating deep fryer, and now I turn out about, geez, I don't know, maybe 10 pounds of almonds a year. What happens is I take the almonds out after they're golden brown, which is about 11 to 12 minutes out of the deep fryer, and put them out to dry, and while they're drying, and they're pretty hot, I place salt on them. After a while, 
for the salt releases. I've tried misting them with water while they're hot and then putting the salt on, thinking it would melt to it a little bit like salt on a pretzel. And I've tried uh, various techniques. Well, Alice Waters does have a method. She takes some salt and water, like three-to-one water to salt, mix it up, toss a bunch of almonds with that, and then she actually, I think, roasts them in the oven. I put a cast iron skillet in a hot oven and get it really hot. And then okay. um, you combine the salt with the water, mix it with the almonds, throw that in the skillet, you know, finish with oil and salt at the end. I think that way the salt might actually get into the almonds It's almost better. like you're simmering them in salted water sort of thing. Yeah. It's Is that what you're okay. suggesting? Yeah. So you're sort suggesting of. that I take the blanched almonds, make three parts water to one part salt. I don't think she uses much. We're talking a few teaspoons here. It's not like a cup or anything. Okay. It's a small it's amount. Dissolved, it's dissolved in the water. Yeah. Obviously. Then you're throwing them in, and then you're suggesting roasting them rather than right. deep frying. Deep fry them. Yeah. Yeah, but use a cast iron skillet and get it screaming hot in the oven, like a 400 degree oven, something like that. Well, okay. Uh, there's always next year. Well, why wait till next year? Why don't you try a little batch now and let us know? All right. Well, I appreciate yep. your tips. I will uh, certainly give it a try, and uh, perhaps I will let you know. Oh, please do. All right. Well, great talking yeah. with you. Thanks for your suggestions. Thanks. And enjoy your show very much. Thanks so much. Right. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Dr. Jessica Harris, a professor, writer, and ranking expert on African-American food waste. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to speak with Jessica Harris, an expert on African-American foodways, author of 13 books, a world traveler, and also someone who enjoyed the company of the likes of James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, and Toni Morrison. Welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's just an enormous pleasure. Uh, you said, and I agree, you said, I am the zealot of the second half of the 20th century, which, I, which is <laughs> yeah, a lovely way to me. put it. Uh, you say you had dinner with Sombin in Senegal, uh, the father of African film. 
you danced in the Candomblé ring, which is a West African religion that was popular in South America, Brazil. Uh, and you spent time, a lot of time in Paris in the 6th arrondissement. <laughs> how, how did you end up in that life? It's just a wonderful life. <laughs> I have no idea, frankly. I mean, I just sort of, I, it's, I guess I just sort of followed my head and my heart to all of these peculiar and strange places. Certainly, well, the Paris was part of the schooling. I was a French major, and I did a junior year abroad. And uh, along with that junior year abroad came all of that, what I call galloping francophilia. So I am a francophile attitré, and that takes care of a lot of things. And then my doctorate is actually on the French-speaking theater of Senegal. That was the subject of my dissertation. Hmm. So that took me to West Africa. And at that point in time, uh, there weren't that many African-Americans who spoke fluent French who were sort of washing up on the shores of Western Africa. And my good, great good fortune was that I found myself in Senegal, where people spoke French and were delighted to have someone with whom to have um, political conversations and real intellectual conversations in the language in which they were most comfortable. And so I got accepted to the hearts of any number of people. And actually, at that point in time, Usman Semben was actually married to a black American. And she and I became friends. You know, it's odd, because just a week ago, I interviewed Pierre Chum, who's a chef who's born in Senegal. And I, I actually I, wrote I fi- the foreword to Pierre's book. Well, there you go. Uh, it's two degrees of separation. Um, I fell in love with him in Senegal, uh, because the role food plays and the nature of the culture and all the different cultural groups and the diversity of the landscape from desert to tropical. Uh, it just sounds like a, an interesting culture. You spent time there. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, Senegal is absolutely an amazing place, first of all, and certainly back when I went, I went in the 70s, BR, as I like to put it, before Roots. (laughs) And Roots certainly changed what West Africa was and became subsequently for African Americans. And so going before Roots meant that there was a certain kind of, I don't know, naivete, if you will, even, or a certain kind of unknowingness of African Americans in another kind of way. So that it was fascinating to to be there, to be able to be there fairly alone, that is to say without great amounts of other tourists, and to then be able to certainly sort of peel some of the onion to discover some of the layers of culture. There's a concept in, um, in Wolof called teranga, Teranga simply means welcome, and and what happens with that welcome is, unlike France, unlike much of Europe, where you are rarely taken into people's homes, I got invited into people's homes. Things such as just a casual, hello, how are you, a casual certain acquaintance, and then I might be invited to dinner, or certainly perhaps not to dinner, but certainly to lunch. And then you find yourself seated around a communal bowl and the commensality of food, the give and take, the sharing, the way that people commune and get together around that bowl of food is something extraordinary. 
Then there were the tastes, and certainly some of the tastes of Senegal, particularly poulet yassa, chicken yassa, yassa ginar, um, reminded me of home. There was a kind of onion chicken thing that went on. It was served over rice, and it sort of began my whole culinary journey. You know, in terms of food, we've always referred to ethnic cooking, which I, I don't like as a description particularly. Did, did you find when you were in South America or Senegal, whatever you were, did, did you feel like it was just food or did you feel it was other people's food? In other words, was there an immediate connection uh, or did you see it as something foreign? I think one of the things that happens is as you travel, food becomes important. That's always been part of what drives my research is reading about everybody who's traveled from Columbus to Marco Polo. And, you know, the army may move on its stomach, but so do travelers. You know, what am I going to have for dinner? Where are we? What's going on? And so I think with all of that part of food is not so much it's their food or it's my food, it's dinner. And what am I going to have for dinner? (laughs) And am I going to like it? I think that's right. And especially in a place like Senegal, I think, which is my next destination, I hope. I uh, see you've been captivated. I, I don't know why. It's it, it just struck a deep chord. Um, one thing I noticed uh, is that ham hock seems to be one of those great all-purpose bases for almost everything, and, and which is just makes a lot of sense. But I, I found that to make a soup or make this or cook greens, ham hocks sort of is a great place to start. Is that is that part of your way of thinking about food? Or how do you think about food? <laughs> what, what do you love? What don't you love? I kind of, I'm an omnivore. I love everything. I am unfortunately allergic to shellfish, which makes me absolutely useless in two of the cardinal points on my globe, New Orleans and Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> But there are other things, and I eat them. Uh, I th- I think ham hocks are they're right there. They're they're kind of all purpose in many ways. Uh, I am not a daily swinevore, if you will, but I do still eat pork, and I find that that sort of smoky, rich, dense heavy, meaty feeling that you can get from a ham hock in something, whether it's a pot of black-eyed peas or a pot of greens or, or even as a basis for a choucroute garni, is, is something pretty extraordinary. Uh, let's talk about the Sweet Home Cafe in the Smithsonian. You obviously consulted on that, uh, four different stations Creole Coast, the Northern States, the Agricultural South, the Western Range, uh, buttermilk chicken, oyster pan roast, son of a gun stew, catfish. Uh, of all the recipes you worked on for that or, or the different stations, wh- what did you love the most? Well, actually, I mean, what was most fun for me about that was trying to figure out how the foods might group or how they did group. And so that whole getting it down to four stations. And actually there was supposed to be a fifth station proposed, which was going to be Culinary Cousins. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to show the connections 
among the foods of the African diaspora. So highlighting things like the food of Senegal alongside so you could actually see and taste the transition between Chebujen and then um, jambalaya or Charleston's red rice and watch how they inflect each other. Um, I think that um, that for me was the most fun. I, I didn't do the specific recipes, I did the suggestions. And then it is to the executive chef and Chef Jerome, who deals with it on a daily basis, who actually came up with the recipes. Yeah, and I, I was also told that the gumbo originated in Senegal, and, and one of the kinds of Carolina rice also came directly from Senegal as well, right? Well, um, what people forget or may not know, I know I didn't know it until I began this culinary journey, you know, decades ago, is that uh, Africa has its own rice. We talk about orita sativa, which is certainly the Asian rice with which we are all familiar, but there's also orita glabirima, and the glabirima is native to Western Africa, and it's a wet rice, and it has its own technology for growing and mm. its own particular taste. And it is the rice that was at the um, origin or that was in many ways at the origin of the Carolina rice culture. Hmm. So that's a thing that, that was sort of one of those gobsmacking things when you're busily researching, you go, wait, 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 did I just read that? And then it's like, yeah, I guess I did. And, and what about and gumbo? gumbo? Yeah, tell me about gumbo. Aha, uh-huh. here comes the gumbo. <laughs> well, there are a lot of gumbo antecedents in Western Africa. Certainly Senegal can lay, lay claim to one with supicanya. And supicanya is a, uh, a soup. Kanya actually means okra, so it is an okra-based soupy stew with crab, with um, the bounty of the sea, if you will, in it. And that certainly has a claim to being a gumbo ancestor. You go down on the continent and you get to Benin, the République du Bénin. Uh, Benin, which is not where the bronzes are from. Those bronzes, the Benin bronzes, are actually from Nigeria. But Benin, the country that used to be called Dahomey, has what it calls a sosfe. And I was recently there and absolutely, again, astounded. A friend prepared some for me, and she prepared it without the shellfish in it, knowing of my allergy. And then two days later, she had company and prepared it with the shellfish in it. And with the shellfish in it, it is a close country cousin to a gumbo or a Caribbean kalalu or any of those dishes, those leafy green soupy stews with okra and with shellfish or seafood of some sort in them. Here's a question. People talk about cultures and cuisines as if they're homogenous. And when you say African-American, you know, I think of maybe 50 different things or 10 or 20 different things. You know, some families, uh, I've talked, interviewed people, they were cooking souffles, you know, and other people were cooking all sorts of different types of food. Is there an African-American culinary culture or is it really diverse and you have to get into the the actual place and the history of of a place to talk about it? 
Well, I think I think several things obtain there. First of all, it's not monolithic. Okay, there's no this is it. Because you think of the number of grandmothers and you think of something like Italy and you say Italian cuisine and then you go, whoops, wait a minute, regionalisms. Wait a minute, you know, individualisms, if you will, even. So that African-American cuisine in general compass may have some things that go for them, but then there are the exceptions that confirm the rule. There are all sorts of things that go with regionality, where people are from. There are things that then go with class. The free people of color around the country, whether it be in New Orleans, in Charleston, in Providence, Rhode Island, in Boston, in New York, and beyond, were often the caterers. And as caterers, they then cooked for everyone not just for a particularly perceived African-American palate. And as such, they ate what they cooked. And so, you know, the circles in the pond widen and widen and widen. And so while, yes, there is certainly, if you will, even perhaps a matrix that comes out of the diet of the enslaved, the um, hog and hominy kind of diet, you find so many other things are equally, you know, part of the Black American, the African American culinary repertoire. So you've traveled, obviously, a great deal. You've met a lot of interesting people, West Africa to South America to, I'm sure, hundreds of other places. Is there a moment or two that were really unique or transformative or changed your life in some way? Well, ironically, I just had a most extraordinary, extraordinary moment just last month. And I I have some deep, deep friendships in Brazil, in Bahia, Salvador de Bahia de Todos Santos, Bahia, and equally in Benin in West Africa. And Benin in West Africa is the area in Western Africa from which many of the enslaved in Brazil came. And I got a call in October from a Brazilian godson who said, we have found the place of origin of the person who was the founder of the Candomblé House in Bahia, and it turns out she's from Benin. Hmm. I want to invite you to come with me and my mother to Benin in January to investigate this. I will send you a ticket. Now, once somebody says they're going to send me a ticket, I'm I'm on the plane. (laughs) I'm gone, yep. So I went... And it was absolutely extraordinary. It was sort of in the realm of spirituals and African-American church songs. And this one would be called Let the Circle Be Unbroken, Hmm. because I got to introduce my Brazilian family to my Beninois family. And that was just transcendent. I don't think I've ever had a moment quite like that, because it really was looking across cultures Actually, across three cultures, I'm the African-American, there were the Afro-Brazilians, and there were the Africans. And we all connected. We connected in terms of food. 
we connected in terms of history and we connected in terms of culture and that was pretty amazing <laughs> oh well i <laughs> uh, <laughs> gotcha. I, I am so jealous i'm not usually jealous but i'm jealous uh, you, you mentioned the condomble religion and you also mentioned having danced in the condomble ring could you just explain what that is it's a religion just so our listeners understand? African religion, African religious impulses, Africa is a continent, and so everything is varied. With enslavement, a lot of things got mixed up in a variety of ways because people were taken and you didn't get to pack, so you had what was in your head. When you get to the other side and you are now thrust in with people who are from all sorts of places, not necessarily where you were from, your only communality is that you are all newly enslaved Africans. And you may have had similar religious impulses. Well, people who came out of the Gulf of Benin about which the um, slave traders used to say, beware and take care of the bite of Benin. There's few who come out, although many go in. It was a very dangerous part of the world for a variety of reasons, because of fevers, because of illnesses, because of all sorts of things. For the Africans, it was dangerous because there was the danger of being enslaved and shipped out to the New World. But when you get to the other side, when you get to Brazil, and you meet people with whom you have communality, you establish something. And so Candomblé is what happens when those impulses were transformed on the other side of the Atlantic and when people found their common spots. And it is the same thing that we find in Cuba called Santeria, but slightly different. And an understanding that Candomblé, while it is a religion, is also cultural because it was about how you maintained your culture. Does that kind of do it? Are, are you a professor? Uh, <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> well, th this has been uh, just a wonderful visit. Dr. Jessica Harris, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for being on Mill Street. Thank you so very much for inviting me. That was Dr. Jessica Harris, a professor and writer and leading expert on African-American foodways. Jessica Harris grew up in what seems to be a different world, one of philosophy, art, debate, and, dare I say the word, ideas. Just in my lifetime, we've transitioned from Aristotle, Plato, Rousseau, and perhaps Sartre, to Yoda, Pokemon, Smokey the Bear, and Mickey Mouse. Aristotle said, quote, at his best, man is the noblest of all animals. Separated from law and justice, he is the worst. Yoda, however, noted that fear leads to suffering, and he said it this way, fear, suffering, it leads. You know, the dinner table has been the natural place to discuss the human experience for millennia. Maybe now would be a really good time once again to set the table for ideas as well as food. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to head to Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge to chat with our wine expert, Stephen Muse, about the Jura wines of France. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Good, Chris. 
I see some labels with the words Jura on it. Yeah. Uh, totally so uh, where is the Jura? Let's well, we're talking it. about the uh, France's uh, eastern border with Switzerland. So if you came into Burgundy and took a right and <laughs> headed toward Lake Geneva, you'd go right through the Jura, okay. more or less. Some altitude there. These are the Jura Mountains. This is a serious mountain range. And there is something really distinctive about Jura wine that I think makes it worth our while to talk about them and for our listeners to know about them. And when I think about Jura wines, I always think about how we want wines that are naturally made, how we don't want people manipulating grapes and wine very much. But there are some places where, in addition to having a really distinctive environment, their winemaking tradition there, the techniques that they use are different, and they produce very different and I think you know quite appealing and delicious wines. And, this is, and the Jura is really a great example of that. So um, we're going to start. You see I've got a red and two whites here. They're all from a single property, Cave Jean Boudy in Arlay in the Jura. And we're going to start with his red rather than one of the whites. And I think you'll see why. So, Chris, you're tasting a blend of two local grapes, Pulsar and Trousseau, and some Pinot Noir. What do you think? I like this a lot. It, it, I mean, it's light in color, mm-hmm. and you thought I would probably say it was wimpy, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> well, you've yeah. done that before I've to done me. That before. I, yeah. But it, actually, it's not. Um, it actually has good body, it has a lot of interesting flavor to it. Yeah. Um, it's a substantive wine, but it's also a light wine at the same time. Yes, it does both. Light. While there's clearly plenty of fruit holding everything up, it doesn't strike you as fruity, right? You would look at this and you might think that this is some fruity little... No, little it's, it's, it's got a good foundation, Yes, but it's not overpowering. Fruit is rather dry, yeah, and the fruit tends toward the savory end of it. Yeah. And the reason for that is that this wine has had... This is... Look at the... Look at the vintage here. It's a 2011. This is the latest release of this wine. This isn't something I pulled out of my cellar. This is, this is what's on the shelves at Formaggio right now. Four years in barrel. And it's those four years in barrel that kind of take the zip out of the fruit. It subdues the fruit. It makes a more savory, drier, earthy kind of wine. And this is the technique. These are big old barrels, huge old barrels, 1,000-liter barrels. They're oak, but they're not new oak or anything like it, so they have no oaky flavors to contribute. They're really, those big barrels, their only job is to create the, just the right kind of exchange between the wine and the air outside to produce this really well-rounded, savory style of wine. And I just love it. And it's a problem solver for us. It's so versatile, you can, you can serve it with all kinds of dishes. That, that was, I really liked that wine. Mm-hmm. That was good. So here we're on to white. Okay, so now we're moving on to the white, and I think you'll see with the first taste why we did the red first. Mmm. What do you think? I love this. Yeah. Does it taste like any Chardonnay you've ever had before? No, it has a vegetal something. I mean, there's something else going on yes. here that's really interesting. Yeah, so le- again, let's have a look at the vintage. It's the 2009, again, the latest release of this wine. Long aging in barrel. And this is the really interesting thing about the way whites are handled in the Jura. And that is that while the modern contemporary style for white wines is to keep them from any contact with oxygen whatsoever. In this part of the world, the tradition is to put these wines into barrels, maybe not completely fill them up. Hmm. So 
typically, if you want to keep oxygen away from something that you're keeping in a barrel, you can imagine it would be very important as the liquid evaporates, as it will over time, that you keep topping that barrel up so that there's no air at the top. Well, if you don't top it up and you leave a little bit of air at the top of that barrel, then you're aging oxidatively. You're allowing the wine some direct access to oxygen. It dramatically changes the chemistry of the wine. I'm surprised you didn't say that it doesn't remind you a little bit of Fino Sherry because there's a little whiff there at the beginning. Were you thinking that? I hate it when I think of something (laughs) and I don't say it and then... Bang. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, This kind of direct contact with oxygen is very similar to what's done with Fino Sherry. And it does produce a little chemical compound called uh, acetaldehydes, which really do give sherry that distinctive nutty, tangy sort of thing. So, savory, earthy, a little nuttiness, a little tanginess, completely different kind of Chardonnay, a lot of fun to drink, great with food. And finally, wine number three, also from the Jura, and the same... Yes, from the the same property, Baudy. Now, what do you think? You're just trying to, like, blow my mind today. I don't know. I've never had a wine like this before. Yeah. So, different grape variety. Um, the grape here is Sauvignon, and we have to be careful to distinguish this is not Sauvignon, as in Sauvignon Blanc. This is Sauvignon, S-A-V-A-G-N-I-N. Again, it's a hyper-local grape. And now we're really beginning to see what makes Jura wines absolutely distinctive because when they put Sauvignon in barrel, it very frequently will spontaneously develop a yeasty bloom on the surface Hmm. of the wine. Again, very similar to what happens with Fino Sherry. Okay, so just to summarize, Jura, J-U-R-A, on the border of Switzerland and France. Yes. And very unusual wines. Yes. and, And lovely wines. Can you get them and anything else about buying them? They're really not that hard to find, in fact. They are a little bit off the beaten path in terms of what people are generally drinking today. So you do have to ask for them. Um, But they're really worth hunting for. They're so good with food. They're so versatile. So that's it, Stephen. Wines from the Jura. We love them. Thank you. You bet. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, we travel to Palermo to taste a very local specialty. That would be a fried spleen sandwich. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary, that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours, that's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball.
This week's Mill Street Basic is a little bit about how to make a great cocktail. You know, we've all seen bartenders shaking cocktails behind the bar. We don't realize how to do it or why we should do it. So here are seven quick rules. First one is use as much ice as you think you need and triple it. The more ice, the colder the cocktail gets. Rule number two, you do want some dilution. And the reason is alcohol percentages over a proof of 85% means that you don't taste the flavors of the alcohol, you just taste the alcohol. Rule number three, cold freezers produce cold ice. Make sure your freezer isn't stuffed with all sorts of other things. You want the ice really cold. Rule number four, shaking aerates cocktails by creating air bubbles. It makes a great light foam out of fruit juices or egg whites. Rule number five, this foam is stabilized by the viscosity of sugar syrups. You do need some sugar syrup in a good cocktail. Rule number six, shake longer and harder than you think, up to an entire 30 seconds if you want a great foam. And rule number seven, we like the Boston shaker. It consists of two cups, one small, one large. We also prefer metal shakers, not glass, since they're less likely to either leak or break. Are you going to eat one? If you like Palermo, you have to eat a spleen sandwich. The food world adores the story of the simple cook who produces a local specialty without any regard to food trends or profit. So here at Milk Street, we decided to test that proposition by visiting Palermo, where our intrepid reporter, Nancy Greenlease, is standing in line to order a fried spleen sandwich. Mm. <laughs> it's very, very good. The, the meat is a little bit salty, obviously fresh and well-chosen meat. Buonissimo. Complimenti. Complimenti. Hi, Nancy. Hello. So we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about spleen sandwich today. You went to Palermo and uh, interviewed someone there who, who specializes in this. So who is this person? And uh, they've been doing this a long time. And, and tell me about them. I enjoyed the sandwich immensely. I had it in, in Palermo at a small stand near the old port run by a family-owned stand run by Gaetano Favata. And he's the third generation to run this stand. He's been working there since he was 15 years old and is now hmm. 50-something. So he's sampled quite a few sandwiches over the years. And so how do they make it? What What is a spleen? I don't really know. Well, it is... The, the spleen of the cow and the lungs, these internal organs that Italians tend to eat. And what's really important is the selection of the meats. Stand owners like Gaetano have a very personal relationship with their cows, and they, they, they might know their cows personally. So they're very carefully selecting this meat. And then they'll wash it very well and boil it and put it aside to cool for a while. Then the preparation begins. That's what I saw in the kitchen of Gaetano Favata's stand, where he is taking the meat and thinly slicing it, and then he's frying it briefly in a vat of simmering pig's lard. Oh, that, I, actually, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely adds flavor. They're removed from the pig's lard, and then the sandwich is assembled. Now, Gaetano was telling me that the roll is very, very important. And it's called a mufoletta, which comes from the Latin word mufola, which means a uh, small sack. 
and it really is kind of like a small sack. It's crusty on the outside, and then the dough on the inside has been kneaded with additional water. So it's sort of spongy inside, which helps absorb, uh, soak up the juices. Now, the, the concept of offal, um, the, the poor cuts of meat, I guess, goes back probably thousands of years. The rich ate the good bits, and everyone else ate everything else, right? So th- there is a long tradition of eating all the parts of an animal because nothing was thrown out. Right. Uh, Gaetano was telling me the the legend that he's heard, and gosh, we're not quite sure how much of this is true, but quite a few folks say it goes back to when there were Jewish butchers in Sicily who were persecuted. Um, uh, there was the nobility that was taking the finest cuts of meat right. for a song, and then the Jewish butchers sold the rest. And there were plenty of people who weren't part of the court who were hungry and wanted to eat. And they were being supplied with the spleen and the lungs and the esophagus and all the other internal organs that then they were transforming into dishes. And one of these dishes was the uh, spleen sandwich because it uh, costs very little. You know, povera cucina, poor cuisine. It costs little, but it isn't junk food either. And that's important to know. This is really fast food, but it's also good food because... You know, we all sort of cringe at the idea of spleen, but these are good cuts of meat that uh, they've selected well and are cooking. Certainly, the lard might create some problems <laughs> with high cholesterol, but uh, all told, it's a fast food that is filling and, for the most part, good for you. So let's get right down to it. So what the, the spleen itself or the lungs, whatever, is this like tongue? I mean, what's the texture like? Let's start with that. The texture is is a bit rough, um, and um, yes, it, it has a, a rough edge to it. It is chewy. It takes a while to get your teeth into it, um, and, and so it's it's not uh, it's not a meat that 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 melts in your mouth. I should add that they they do pair it um, the the spleen with um, some people will dress it with lemon. And that's called schietta, which means single. Or you can also have it with ricotta cheese. So, so th- this is a stand. So you stand in line. There's, there's no indoor seating, right? This is something you eat on the street, like you do in Rome. Sometimes you eat some of that, the flat, you know, rectangular pizza. You just stand outside and eat it, right? Exactly, exactly. There are a few tables. You can't even call them tables in uh, Gaetano's stand. Um, there are those uh, uh, chest-high tables right. where you can right. lean on them with right. your sandwich and, and a beer. and uh, But most of the folks take them and, and stand outside and watch the world go by. And they, they eat them in five minutes, ten minutes, while chatting with their uh, fellow dock workers or executives. You see every walk of life coming in and out of there. And then they go on their way. I really like the sandwich, and I also really like Gaetano also, and the culture, and it's the opportunity to try something that you can rarely get outside of Palermo. Um, You certainly can't get outside of Italy. So um, I go go for the sandwich, but I also go for the experience. That was Nancy Greenlease, a reporter living in Rome. This story left me with a quandary. What is, in fact, the takeaway? That anything fried and served with ricotta is worth eating? That hunger will turn any part of any animal into dinner? Or perhaps that there are still places in the world that stick to their traditions out of habit and not avarice? 
Well, whatever the moral of the story, I just feel a whole lot better knowing that somewhere in the world, there is a cook who makes a living frying spleens and selling them as sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.